Nehemiah 13 is a massive <laughs> anticlimax. This is the way to start, is to really just set expectations, you know, where you're at. I'm not a happy ending guy. I, I just, you know, where the ending of a movie is so neat and so good, and, you know, the hero, uh, you know, struggles through insurmountable odds and uh, manages to... Um, get the bad guys and the girl and save everyone at the same time. It's just too neat for me. I just, I, I just don't like it. My, my girls get annoyed because, you know, halfway through the movie, I get up and I say, this is how it's going to end, and I, I walk out, you know? But what frustrates me, though, even more than the, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, bubblegum endings are those endings where the whole movie has been about getting you to watch the sequel. So, which is why I refused to watch whatever movie came after Infinity Wars, okay? Because I'm like, there is no way I'm getting suckered into that, you know? By the way, they already have a contract for a Spider-Man movie, and they already have a contract for a Black Panther movie, so we know they're not actually dead. So I'm not getting ripped off, you know? One thing I do like, though, are endings that make people think. Like, what was this about? Like, No Country for Old Men, where, where you're like watching that ending and you're like, I don't know that I'm comfortable with this ending that way. Maybe I am. Maybe something different happened. Or Shutter Island or Inception, where you're sitting there thinking, is he mad? Did they kill him? What's going on? I don't know what's going on. Is the top going to keep spinning? Who knows? Oh, it wobbled, you know? And people write blogs and argue and, and do all sorts of things about about endings, and, and Nehemiah is one of those endings that's not the Hollywood ending. Most of us would love Nehemiah to end where Corin ended Nehemiah last week. Nehemiah 12, verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Dissolve fade, go to black, credits start to roll, and it's like, yeah, that's not how it ends. And we pick up with Nehemiah having returned, because remember, he promised the king that once I do this, once I, once I build the wall, once I, once I build the temple, then I'll come back. Um, and so he's, uh, he's gone back to King Artaxerxes, and we don't know why he returned to Jerusalem, but we know this was um, a period of, of about 12 years that this whole thing took. We know it only took 52 days to repair the wall, but we know that, um, that Nehemiah was in Jerusalem for about 12 years. We don't know why he went back to Jerusalem after he went back to his king to serve him as a cupbearer, but it's sad to see what's happened in what commentators say is about five to six years um, since his return. Promises are made to be broken. Now these were promises that they made two weeks ago. Remember, we covered the fact that the law was read and the people responded out of their own saying, okay, we promise that we will give not only what we need to give as Israelites, but we will give what we need to give personally so that temple worship can continue. Uh, they promised that they would keep the Sabbath holy and that they promised that they wouldn't intermarry so that they wouldn't be led astray in terms of worshiping other gods. And so we pick up in Nehemiah 13 from verse 4, and we look at promise one being rescinded. The temple of God defiled and the Levites are ignored. Now before this, 
Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went back to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. I came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all of the furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders that they cleanse the chamber. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and singers who did the work, this is the, the people that worked in the temple so the temple worship could take place, had each fled to his own field. So I confronted the officials and I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouses. Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and his assistant Hanan, the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, who were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Sorry, their duty was to distribute yeah, to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In chapter 10, verse 39, all of Israel says this very profound saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is two chapters previously. This is some commentators say anywhere between three to six previously. We will not do exactly what has happened now. What is the big deal about Tobiah living in the storehouse of the temple. It's a big deal. This is the place where all the materials that you used in order to gain access to God through the sacrificial system were stored. All of those materials were tossed out, and now Tobiah is living there. Well, why is that so bad? Tobiah, do you remember who Tobiah was? Tobiah was the person that mocked, threatened, and intimidated Nehemiah when Nehemiah came back to build the wall. He was the person that said, man, if a fox jumps up on this wall, this whole wall will come down. He was not only an enemy of Nehemiah, but he was an enemy of Israel. Now, in, in, in our day, this would be like, um, and I'll use a couple of examples because some of you might not get the political example, okay? But this would be like someone building AOC, an apartment in Donald Trump's house <laughs> and throwing out all of his golf stuff so that she can have space. Or, for the superhero fans, this would be like um, someone building Lex Luthor a house in Superman's house of solitude, right? Whatever. <laughs> Clearly, I am more aware of real life than I am of imaginary life, you know? This is not just saying, you know what, let's make a little bit of room for some guy that's homeless. This is saying we are going to get rid of that which enables us to access God. The promise that we made not to forsake 
the house of God, and we're going to put an enemy of God in there. This is not benign neglect. This is them understanding what they're doing. In our lives, often what happens is familiarity makes us overlook sin. And sometimes, because understand as Jesus has come, we are the temple of God. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, who have we made room for in our temple and squeezed out what God always intended to be in there so that we could have access to him? Who is taking residence in our heart that is an enemy of God? It could be an idea. It could be a sinful habit. It could be just a wrong understanding of who God is, uh, making God in our image. Who have we made space for? The second promise that is rescinded is the Sabbath being ignored and defiled. In verse 15, we pick up and it says, In those days I saw Judah, people t- I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also lived in the city and brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Exclamation point. I didn't put that in there. The writers put that in there. Exclamation point. What does he do? Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring all this disaster on us and the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon, so this is solution number one. We see that Nehemiah um, appoints treasurers. He throws out all the stuff. He's like, okay, we've got to fix this. I'm going to make sure that what I know to do, and we know that Nehemiah was a good politician. We know that he was a good leader. Uh, We know that he motivated people well. And so he fixed the problem in the temple. Now he fixes the problem in the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark and the gates of Jerusalem, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until the Sabbath. So basically he's saying there is no way you're going to be able to bring food and there's no way you're going to be able to trade in Jerusalem. And then I stationed some of my servants at the gates, just in case someone's going to creep in. I've put my servants there so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. Then the merchants and all sellers of all kinds who were lodged outside, sorry, lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. So what he's done is he's created this wall, he's closed the gate, and the merchants are like, well, you know what we'll do? If we don't have access to the inside of the city, we'll just put up our stalls outside the city. And city walls were interesting in those days because houses were actually built into city walls. So you could actually trade with someone in between a wall. Okay? So Nehemiah gets a little intense here. He says, but I warned them. And I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now this is not like, I will lay hands on you. This is, this is not that. This is, I will lay hands on you hard, fast, and continuously. That's what I will lay hands on you. It means that I will beat you. That's what that means. Um, And so from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. That's, they got the message. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Again, remember me also in my favor, O God, 
and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And so what the Israelites were guilty of is something that we are also guilty of, is not only an active disobedience, but a passive neglect. So there were people that were literally treading wine on the Sabbath. And they knew not to do that because that's work. Uh, but there was also neglect in the sense that they allowed others to whom the Sabbath was not um, a religious duty. So they allowed other tribes to come into Jerusalem and to trade on the Sabbath. And it's the same with us where we can be actively disobedient in the sense of knowing that this is for my own benefit, this is for my own spiritual renewal and formation, and I'm not going to participate in that. Or we can be guilty of a sense of passive neglect where we're just happy with um, people just camping out around us that actually makes it so much easier for us to neglect the Sabbath. We're not actually doing it ourselves, but, oh man, I've run out of bread. You know, it'd be easy if I just... If I just, there he is, he's sitting outside the wall. Sometimes we're not intentional enough. Um, and we let those things just hover around our world. And what they'll do is they'll just encroach and encroach and make our world smaller. Until before we realize, like Nehemiah has come back to Jerusalem. He's like, what are you doing? And he gets super intense. The third promise that is rescinded starts in verse 23. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and here's his solution, and I confronted them, and I cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair, or beards, that's what that means. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And he said, sorry, and one of the sons of Jehoda, the son of Eliashab, the high priest. Again, this guy is a not a very clever guy. So not only has he created a space for Tobiah in the temple, one of his son-in-laws has married a woman. We don't know which of the tribes she was, but one of his son-in-laws was Sanballat the Horonite. And what does he do? I chased him away. This is not like, please go away. This is, I literally, physically chased him away. Remember me, O God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed from everything foreign, sorry, thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his own work, and I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. That's how that ends. That's how Nehemiah ends. And we know, those of us that know enough about Israelite history, that actually none of those solutions that he put in place actually lasted maybe even longer than the five or six years. We know that very soon Jerusalem was back to a nation that was not distinct. 
I mean, what was the problem with the intermarriage? It wasn't the issue about racial intermarriage. It was about this. Their children could not speak the language of the covenant. If your child cannot speak the language of the covenant, how can they participate in the covenant? This had nothing to do about who you married, more to do about who you worshipped. We covered that two weeks ago. The next generation is being polluted. And the renewal and restoration of the people of Israel has failed. The things that are standing are the wall and the temple and the city. But there is no distinctiveness. And it's, it's quite a sad end. Where basically when Nehemiah is saying, Hey God, I tried. Remember me. It's interesting that he doesn't say, Oh God, won't you help them? Oh God, won't you forgive them? When we see Moses praying, you know, Moses is like, Oh God, don't. Don't destroy them. I know. I know that they are disobedient. I know that, but, but they are your people. And Nehemiah is like, no, remember me, God. I tried. I tried. And it is one of those things, right? When we get in those situations, it's like, man, everything else is going to pop. But actually, I'm trying. Does everyone see that I'm trying? As long as you can see that, we're good. What's the point of this? Why is this book even in the Bible? There's no resolve. What do we do with this? Then actually, here we go. We're going to tell you a story about how God is going to bring renewal and restoration to his people, and it fails. Is there a sequel? There is a sequel. Okay. But it's a different kind of sequel. What do we do with Nehemiah's anger? And I confronted them. I cursed them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Is this a, like a new disciplinary procedure for church? Right? Is this, is, this, is this one of those things that is like normative rather than descriptive? We're like, well, it's here. So just in case you sin, Neil is going to beat you. Jacqueline will pull out your hair, you know, because she's been in some of those kinds of fights, you know. And I'll make you take an oath, you know. Well, she can't exactly pull out Neil's hair. So, you know what I mean? So, well, yeah, the beard. There we go. His anger is not inappropriate. You have to understand this. Can you, can you imagine? And parents, you, you will understand this in a deep and profound way. There is, there is something that happens to you in terms of anger when someone does something wrong, but there's something else that says, I will not do that, and then goes and does it. There is this little volcano that is reserved just for that kind of thing where you're like, but you said you wouldn't, or you said you would. And remember, those promises that the people of Israel made, they weren't promises forced on them by Nehemiah. They were promises that they said, hey, we have decided we're going to do this. So his anger is not inappropriate. His solutions are not completely crazy, that, but that's all he has. All he has is the law. Okay, well, if, I, if they've done this, and the outcome is that, then if I do this, it will work better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more intense. I'm going to show them the consequences. I'm going to trust in my flesh. I'm going to make sure that I choose the right people because ultimately, whatever I do, I can solve this problem. It sounds a lot like some of us when we're faced with these cyclical issues that come up in our lives. Even when we've promised, we say, God, I won't. Or God, I will. And then we, we wake up one morning and, and we realize, and we've invited 
so much junk, not into just Jerusalem, but into the temple of our hearts. I will fix this. I'm going to get super intense. I'm going to get super into this. I'm, 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 I'm going to make sure that everything in me is going to ensure success. Well, if Nehemiah's intensity did not ensure success, then we realize that everything that is motivated by our flesh is misguided, dangerous, and ultimately ineffectual. I, I feel like Nehemiah sometimes. I feel like I want to pull out my own beard and the beard of other people too. Because I feel like if I get angry enough, if I get intense enough, and if I give you a bulletproof plan that Nehemiah had done three times for, for this issue, then why the heck are you not doing it? You know? And I can say that externally, I can say that internally as well as I look in the mirror. I'm like, seriously, what is the matter with you? The matter is they have hearts of stone. The matter is that their lives have not been transformed internally. The matter is, is that there is no way to solve a deeply spiritual disease with the arm of the flesh. It cannot be done. Now, anger is a powerful motivator to act, but it's a terrible vehicle for change. So how do we change? Because the, the, the reality is we're beginning to see some of the cycle in our own lives. Nehemiah is like a condensed version of the Old Testament. There is a promise from God to bless this people. There is sin. There is judgment. There is repentance. People return and say, we're sorry. They promise not to do it again. God floods them with mercy. There is restoration and then there is sin again. And the cycle continues throughout the whole Old Testament. And in Nehemiah, we have this little condensed version of it. In the, in the Old Testament and in Nehemiah, there's sin in the beginning, there's sin in the middle, there's sin in the end. Israel is back in the land that God promised. The city is rebuilt. The temple is intact. The wall is strong. But Israel as a people is a mess. Getting Israel out of Egypt was a once-off event. Getting Egypt out of Israel is something that God is still doing. And it's the same with us. The moment we said yes to Jesus, we were transferred from darkness to light. We, we came out of the captivity of Egypt and we came into the covenant people of God and now we realize how much of Egypt is in us. And as we go around those mountains, we have the opportunity to say, I'm going to fix this with intensity, with a plan, with a real sense of consequence or I'm not going to care about it at all. Oh, there is another way. Point is that until Jesus comes, there is no transformation of the inner being. And so for, for the Israelites, in a sense, they were, they were destined to fail. The point is that without new hearts, without complete transformation of the inner being, no willpower, no leadership, no strength, no focused activity, no accountability, even to the point of violence, will change what is a deeply spiritual disease. It cannot happen until the perfect sacrifice 
has come. It is only the Spirit that does that. And remember, Jeremiah and Ezekiel that were talking to the same people were promising there will be a day. There will be a day where your heart of stone will be transformed into a heart of flesh. Where, where God will write His law on your heart. And where you will know God. No one is going to have to teach you how to know God. J.I. Packer says that loving God with heart, mind, soul, and strength is altogether beyond the unregenerate man's capacity. What that means is there is no way that someone that has not been led to God by God is actually able to love God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the one who is united with Christ by faith from the human side and by the spirit from the divine side, motivational holiness is spontaneous and natural. And the unnatural thing is for him to do violence to his renewed nature by yielding to the desires of his flesh. What does that mean? Okay? What that means is this. Once our hearts have been transformed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, our resting place is one of acceptance, is one of holiness, is one of desiring to do the good that we are unable to do in the flesh, and our lean towards sin has changed, and our lean is now towards holiness. And how many of you are saying, that's me? Yeah, no. A lot of the time we feel like our lean is towards our nature, our fleshly sinful desires. And we feel this consistent battle. And so, Nick, I can ascend to this theory of the new covenant. I desire it. I believe it. But my actions and behavior reveal that I believe something else. I still feel like I'm in the same cycle as Israel. I still feel like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to kind of muster all of my energy and I'm going to stay strong because I understand the perfection of that sacrifice. I understand the love that has been given to me. But one of the things that we don't understand is we don't lean enough on the Spirit to be able to do this. How can we change? How can the cycle be broken? Well, three things. We, we need to understand the reality of tension. We need to embrace the necessity of effort. And we also need to accept that this side of eternity, there will be an incompleteness of achievement. So we understand the reality of tension. And, and if you've been in the faith long enough, you'll know that there are some scriptures that drive you crazy in terms of, well, thanks for that. What do I do with that? And, th and this is one of them. Galatians 5, 16 to 18 says, But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Thank you very much. But how, how do I do that? I desire to do that. I know that it's better for me. I know that I'm going to flourish. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other. They, they, um, the King James says they are enemies of one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And that's one of the key things, is understanding that if, if you have placed your faith in Christ, as a Christ follower, this verse is important to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You now have a bias towards holiness. The Spirit of God lives in you. Whether you feel it or not, you are a holy, beloved Son of God. That's 
that's part of the tension, right? We, we live in the reality of this tension. I am a saint. The Bible declares me to be a saint. But I also know that then I'm a sinner. I know that I have the Spirit of God that lives in me, but I also have the flesh. So the question is, is this an equal battle? Is this like sometimes the flesh wins, sometimes the Spirit wins, and, you know, until the end of the age... You know, that's the way that it'll be. It's not an equal battle. And that's part of the challenge is that we've, we've believed that it's an equal battle. And we've believed in a sense that you win some, you lose some. But it's not an equal battle. Because it wouldn't be good news if it was an equal battle. Because a lot of that would depend on us. It's not an equal battle because we have died with him and we have been risen with him. Which is why we conduct baptisms. Baptism is an opportunity to visually show that you have died with Christ and that God has raised you up. That's why we do it. It's not just because we want to get people wet. So, so when you get baptized, what are you saying? That I have died to my old self and I have risen in the power of Christ. And what we're saying is I'm co-crucified and I'm co-resurrected. Colossians 3 tells us this, if you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians tells us that we are seated in heavenly places with Christ. That place of honor that is reserved for Jesus, we are there with him. We have that opportunity. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And instead of filling our minds and our spirits and our hearts with these verses that tell us of our power, that tell us of our position, we are still trying to do what Nehemiah did. I've got a better plan. I'll get better people. I'll get a better position or a, a different geography. Things will look better. You have been fully justified. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have been imputed or otherwise given to, ascribed to Jesus Christ at the cross. So there is no condemnation that rests on you. You have been fully and completely pardoned from guilt. Do you know what that means? That means that you can come out of hiding, like Karn said, and you can say, God, I'm really battling with this tension. I know that this is what you say of me. I know that I am a son of God. I know that I'm seated in heavenly places. I know that I have the Spirit of God in me that enables me, the grace of God that enables me to say, no, but I am battling. I can't do this. Or I've just blown it. Please help me. Because once I understand that I am completely, utterly justified and forgiven, then I can easily and quickly come to God and say, I've blown it or I need help. And not only am I forgiven, you know, because I, I unfortunately have this pattern. It's like, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget that you did that. Right? God doesn't, God doesn't operate that way. We are fully forgiven and fully accepted. There isn't this sense in which, and, and this is one of the pictures that's been helpful and also harmful. One of the pictures that has been helpful is basically saying God doesn't see you, He sees Jesus. Well, that's helpful, but it's also harmful in the sense that, that we think 
there is this weird kind of sense of dissatisfaction that God has with me in general, and that's just delayed because He sees me through. No, God is fully accepting, fully loving of who you are in your weakness, in your sinfulness, in your pain, all of that. He knows all of that. And the reason why Jesus stands there is to remind us that we are fully accepted. It's not so much to remind God. God's not like, oh, I'm so angry with Sean. Uh, and then, okay, well, Jesus is it. No, it's Sean. When he's in this place of saying, I can't come to God, I can't ask God for forgiveness again, I'm re then he looks at Jesus and he says, yes, I can. I can, because I'm fully justified and I'm fully accepted in him. God relates to me on the basis of His Son's perfect obedience and righteousness so that I am totally accepted by the Father. None of which, result, none of which is my own merit. But that doesn't mean that He doesn't love me. He passionately loves me. And the reason why He has been able to do that is because of the sacrifice of Jesus. How we engage this conflict and who we rest our confidence on is what makes this tiresome, unfruitful, shame-building, and guilt-multiplying. Because we rest, or we engage this conflict resting our confidence on ourselves. We need to embrace the necessity of effort. Oh, I'm running out of time. Jesus, help me. We need to embrace the necessity of effort. The Spirit enables the Christian not only to resolve to do what is right, but to actually give them the power to do those things. Uh, we need the Spirit's help to form habits so that we can be in a state, now this is important, so that we can be in a state of receptive grace. This is not about doing more, but this is about engaging in the Spirit so that you have greater opportunities to be in a state of receptive grace so that you can receive what God wants to give you because out of being in that state of receptive grace, you begin to build habits which build character um, and you begin to sow an action which builds character which then eventually becomes who you are. A lazy act makes a habit of laziness becomes a lazy person. The same is true in the opposite. But the Spirit works through means. The Spirit doesn't just work magically. We, we all wish that would happen, right? We all wish. We'd say, okay, God, right, take this away from me. Or give me more joy. Boom, right? Like Aladdin. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. He works through objective means of grace, through biblical truth, through prayer, through fellowship, through worship, through service, through giving, and through communion at the Lord's table. But he also works through subjective means of grace. So thinking, listening, meditating, questioning, examining, admonishing yourself, admonishing one another. Habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us towards holiness. Holiness by habit forming is not self-sanctification. It's not the same thing as what Nehemiah was doing. Holiness by habit forming is uh, putting ourselves in a place where we can receive the grace of God intentionally. How many of you guys have seen that program Yard Crashers? Right? Not many of you. <laughs> right. 
So this is what happens at yard crashes. There's this guy. He's funny. He's kind of a little weird. Um, but he hangs out at Lowe's. And then he sidles up to people. And he says, what you doing? Which kind of freaky, right? He's like, um, I'm going to repair the toilet in my house. He's like, you want some help with that? And they're like, no, I don't. I'm absolutely fine. Thank you very much. Some of the people recognize him. And some of the people know that basically what happens is he's going to redo your whole backyard for free. And so some of the people are like, hi. Hey. hey. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, hey, I know who you are. It's like, so what do you want? You know? And it's interesting to watch the interchange between the people that are suspicious and the people that really want him to come back to their house. This is the catch, though. They do. I mean, like, Karen loves watching this, and I've, I've told her that she needs to stop because it's becoming an area of great envy um, for her. <laughs> Seeing as I'm the one that has to do the garden, you know. So Karen gets out there, and she's like, huh, okay. No, she's not like that. This is the catch with yard crashes. He says, okay, I'm going to be at your house tomorrow. I want you and a bunch of your friends. And we're going to do this together. He does not say to the guy, like it is with home makeover, right? He does not say to them, go on vacation. And when you come back, this whole thing will be fixed. No, he brings all of his friends. He brings all of his tools. He brings all of his knowledge. And then he says, let's do this together. And that's what embracing the necessity of life in the Spirit looks like for us. God is saying, you want some help with that? And we're like, no, I got this. You know? Some of us are actually at that place where we recognize Him and we say, please, please come back with me. And the good news is, He will always come back to your backyard. He doesn't have a budget. He's not trying to find the best kind of TV personality for this. All he's waiting for is saying, yeah, I'll come back. But you be ready to work and bring some friends. And the power of sanctification and walking in holiness is we do it together. And we also exert effort in the way in which we do this. Finally, we need to accept the incompleteness of achievement. We will never reach sinless perfection this side of eternity. But God has, has given us the means to walk in relational reality. We are united with Christ, adopted by the Father, empowered by the Spirit to live a life that is flourishing, attractive, and brings glory to Him. And the fact that when we fail, we are still loved, treasured, pursued, included, and healed should motivate us and encourage us even more. Jesus, unlike Nehemiah, doesn't come with an inspector's sheet and say, okay, let's see how you did. He doesn't come with a punch list. And Nehemiah says to them, you're going to make an oath. You're going to make a covenant. And Jesus says, I'm going to make a covenant. And you are just going to be beneficiaries of that covenant. Nehemiah gives in to human frustration. And Jesus is long-suffering and patient. Nehemiah uses punishments, threats, violence, shame. Jesus was punished, threatened, violated, and treated shamefully for us. Nehemiah's intervention was temporary. Jesus' intervention is eternal. Nehemiah left 
and Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, but sent us the Spirit of God, and we are seated with Him in heavenly places. In the end, Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays, God, remember me. On the cross, where Jesus is paying for our sin, He says, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Even at the time where He could pray, God, are you seeing this? His focus is us. That's why we can be confident. That's why we can say, like Paul said to the Corinthians, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves or claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us, com he has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that even here there are, um, there are people that are, are wondering what that means for them. And I pray, Spirit of God, that you would come and as we respond in song, you would minister to them. That there would be a breaking of this fatalism that it doesn't matter what happens, the cycle will never change. And until Jesus comes back, it will just be the same old, same old. God, I want to pray by your Holy Spirit that you would come and that you would evaporate shame, guilt, and hiding. Because we've tried it ourselves, it hasn't worked, and now I'm afraid of coming to you, God. I've sown my fig leaves, and I feel like that's okay. But God, I also want to pray for a fresh empowerment for us to join you in your work and to present ourselves to you so that we have access to your means of grace. God, we want to be a people that say, yes, we'll be there tomorrow and we'll bring our friends. Because we know that whatever you have planned for us is going to blow our mind and it's going to be more than we could ask or think for a I do want to pray for my brothers and sisters for just a fresh experience of your love and a 